Good morning. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to begin, uh, we're going to read the middle section of the passage we're going to be looking at today. We're going to read together uh, chapter 2, verse 14 to 18. I'll be reading from the New American Standard uh, Version. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at this passage that you would uh, speak to our hearts, that you would minister uh, to, to us because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title selected for this section is To Form a More Perfect Union. And for those of you who had to memorize the preamble to the Constitution of the United States of America, you know that this is the first statement of uh, the first of the goals. Uh, we established this Constitution uh, to form a more perfect union, uh, to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility, and on through several more. And there's a power to unity that's been recognized by mankind for a long time. Helen Keller, who became blind and deaf at 19 months because of an illness, understood the weakness of being alone. A teacher, Ann Sullivan, working with her at age seven, and then, therefore, thereon, um, worked with Helen, and Helen Keller became the first blind and deaf person to graduate from college. She wrote, alone, we can do so little. Together, we can do so much. Benjamin Franklin, at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, exhorted his fellow signers, we must all hang together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. Or even more pointedly, Coach K, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name, of the Duke Blue Devils basketball team, said this, a basketball team is like the five fingers of your hand. If you get them all together, you have a fist. And that's how I want you to play. And you get this idea of the power of unity showing up in lots of names. We are the United States of America, not the assorted states. The United States. It was the Soviet Union. It is the United Nations. The United Way. And each name gives a sense of power. Mankind's history reveals the power of unity. At the Tower of Babel, God said, Behold, they are one people, 
and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So God confounded their language. I suspect that the confusion of the language gave, door, gave a door of opportunity for that which is really uh, the source of separation and division, sin. If I can't know what you're saying to someone else, immediately my mind gets suspicious. And so it broke up the unity of mankind. Warren Wiersbe writes that between 1500 B.C. and A.D. 850, we know of over 7,500 eternal covenants agreed among nations with the hope of bringing peace, but that not a single one of them lasted longer than two years. What mankind has never been able to do since the Tower of Babel, God is going to do. He's going to put together a unity a unified body out of every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation. It's called the church. And so he's going to talk about how he formed this more perfect union. But let's do a little review so we're all together. In Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, we have our wealth in Christ. And so it talks about God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And, and it shows the work of the entire Trinity in our salvation. You have uh, the will of the Father. It's his plan. Uh, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless uh, before him. He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That was God's plan. And then we have the work of the son, his purchase. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. He made known to us the mystery of God's will. He made us an inheritance uh, belonging to God. And then we have uh, the witness of the spirit. The spirit seals us, which tells us we're owned by God. And that God will protect us and make us secure. And he's given as a pledge that we will indeed inherit all of our inheritance. And then in Ephesians 1, 15 to 22, Paul prays that we understand, we comprehend this wealth that we have in Christ. That we don't live as paupers because we don't see what we have in Christ. And particularly, he wants us to know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of, his in, of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing power that he shows towards us who believe. And so he prays for us. And, and those are model prayers for us to pray for each other. And then last week, Gabe did a wonderful job of talking about our new position individually. In Ephesians uh, 3, 1, 3 through 14, we have a, the heavenly perspective. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we have the earthly perspective. We saw God planned it. The Lord Jesus came to purchase it. The Holy Spirit's there to, to, to witness to us. But in Ephesians 2, 10, we saw why we need it. Because we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Because we walk uh, according to the course of this world. 
because we lived in the lust of the flesh, um, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. We needed help. And then we saw what God did. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. And he doesn't stop there. So that in the ages to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us. A million years from now, I'll have a better handle on the grace of God. And if you talk to me a hundred million years after that, I'll say I didn't know nothing back earlier. Because God's going to show us the surpassing riches of his grace. That's our future. And then he says, listen, it's how do you get it? Um, for it's by grace through faith that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. It's a gift from God. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. And then what's he going to do with it? He's going to make us Christ's masterpiece, created unto good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And so we have this wonderful thing that says, here's what God's plan is, and here's how it works out in your life. And now he's going to kind of do a parallel passage where he's going to talk about our position corporately. You know, God doesn't save us so we can be lone rangers. He makes us part of a group. In fact, when we begin talking about the Christian walk, beginning in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 uh, through 16, uh, the first of five times you hear the word walk, I call it the group walk because it talks about us as a group, as a community. And um, it begins with an exhortation to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And in this passage, he's going to tell us what that unity in the Spirit is. God is revealing the power, the person, and the purpose of this unity that he's creating, of a people he's called out for his own possession who will be a royal and holy priesthood. See, God is doing a greater work than the work he's doing in you individually. He's doing a greater work than he, the work he's doing here at Bethany. He's doing a greater work than the work he's doing in the U.S. He's doing a greater work than he's doing in this present time. It covers all space and all time, the whole world. In fact, when we get to chapter 3, we're going to see it goes beyond this world. <laughs> And so he wants us to get a handle on this. And we're going to look at this section, his work to form a more perfect unity. We're going to talk about the power of our unity. This is not, I almost changed this, of the power for our unity. It is the power that makes our unity um, that we're really talking about here. So let's take a look. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, 
Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul takes the, the example of, of the division, the Jews and the Gentiles. And he says, therefore, and he's pointing back to chapter 2. He's pointing back to those original verses where we walked according to the course of this world. He's talking to Gentiles in the flesh. And he says, you know, you were called uncircumcision by the Jews, those who were circumcised in the flesh by human hands. That was a derogatory nickname. To be circumcised was a sign that you're God's people. And so when they were calling us uncircumcised Gentiles, they're saying, you're not part of God's people. You're uncircumcised. I used to read some books that dealt with uh, the nobility in England in the 1800s. And when they talked about the common people, they called them the great unwashed. And I was actually reading a, a magazine. I, I was waiting in some waiting room. I don't even know where. And there was this magazine there. And it, it was... Uh, pretty high society magazine. All the ads in it were designer things. And I was reading this one article, and it says, now here's a picture of this person with the great unwashed. And I said, they still use that to describe those of us who aren't high society. We're the great unwashed. Well, the Jews said, every time they saw a Gentile, there's an uncircumcised person. He's not one of God's people. But Paul points out that the problem of the Jews was their circumcision was performed in the flesh by human hands. And hu physical circumcision holds no spiritual significance. In Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, God talks about the circumcision of the heart. The Lord, could, Jesus could say of the Jews, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God's looking for reality in the life. You can come to Bethany every Sunday and go to a lost eternity. Because coming to Bethany doesn't save you. It's your heart responds to God and his son. And so, so Paul had said earlier of the Jews, after saying you walked according to the course of this world, he says, and um, among them we too, talking about Jews, lived in the lusts of the flesh. We had the same problem the Gentiles did. But there he talks about the strength of the division that God made because God made a division between Israel and the Gentiles. Israel was to be a sign of, of a people chosen by God and to be a light to the world, to bring forth the Christ. And so he lists five benefits that Gentiles did not have. Uh, verse 12, remember you were at that time separate from Christ. King James Version says without. It's a much stronger word. It means you had no claim on Christ because Christ was promised to the Jews. He's the Messiah. When Jesus came, he sent his apostles, uh, his disciples to the house of Israel. He rarely did anything for a Gentile. And, and in Matthew, you have the example of that Syrophoenician woman who had a demon-possessed girl, and she came to the Lord Jesus, and she said, Jesus, son of David, help my daughter. And the Lord Jesus says, I'm not going to take bread from the children and give it to the dogs. 
Please understand, dogs in that day weren't cuddly pets you have at home. They were mangy uh, scavengers that ran in packs. Now, why would he say that? Because son of David was a statement of the Christ. She was claiming his help based on the fact that he was the Messiah, and she's a Gentile. She had no claim. When blind Bartimaeus said, son of David, help me, the Lord Jesus stopped. Why? Because he was Jewish. He had a claim. Now, when the woman turns and says, but Lord, even the dogs get the scraps left from the table. When she comes by faith and says, listen, I believe that, that a scrap of your help will heal my, my daughter, the Lord, in mercy and grace, heals her daughter. But she had no claim. You and I had no claim on the Christ, the Messiah. And then he goes on, and he says, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. God says, I'm going to choose Israel to be my people. I'm going to be their God. They're, they're going to be my nation. If you're a Gentile, you weren't part of that nation. You had no claim on God because that relationship was between him and the Jews. And then he goes on. He says, and strangers, outsiders to the covenants of promise. God made a, promise, made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He made a covenant with Israel at Sinai. He made a covenant with David. He promised them a land. He promised them a future glorious kingdom. You know what? You and I have none of that. I will never be promised by God a plot of land in Israel. That's promised to the Jews. Not my promise. I'm excluded from all those promises. And then he says, having no hope. If you talk even to an uh, uh, Orthodox Jew today, you say, what's your hope? Well, the Messiah is coming. That was their hope. We had no hope. Gentiles had no hope. We couldn't say, well, there's somebody coming to rescue us. God hadn't given us that promise. And without God in the world, it didn't mean they, they had all kinds of gods, but they had no guarantee of God's help. God had committed himself to help Israel. He had not committed himself to help the Gentiles. But then notice what he says. But now, just like he said, but God, See the parallel? He talks about the terrible state we're in. Now, as Gentiles, he talks about the terrible state we're in. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus. Notice he adds the name Jesus. Jesus came to save people from his sins, Jews and Gentiles. Now in Christ, I have something. I was excluded from Christ, but I'm in Christ Jesus. I was not part of the nation of Israel, but I'm part of the church, God's inheritance in the saints. I had no covenant with God, but Jesus, when he took the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. I have a covenant with God now. I had no hope, but I'm looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. I have a hope now. I had no promise of God's help, but I have promised he'll never leave me nor forsake me now. See, things have changed because of Jesus Christ. And so he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you formerly who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These terms far off and near were terms that, that applied to Jews and Gentiles. 
Uh, and it originally had to do geographically, uh, and it was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was where the temple of God was. Who were the people near? Well, the Jews. Who were the people far off? Well, the Gentiles. So they just began to use those terms as, as far, far off people. That's the Gentiles. We're the ones who are near to God. But now we have been brought near to God. And, and so he talks about um, the answer to the division is Jesus Christ. That's the power of, of us being brought close to God, reconciled to God. The strength of our unity isn't a doctrine. The strength of our unity isn't a, 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 a form of church government. It's not a, even a group of elders or a speaker. The strength that gives us unity is that Christ is the center and we come to him. And he provides the power to be unified. In 1956, five men went to take the, the gospel to the Aka Indians. Now they actually had a different name, but I'm not going to try to pronounce it. But they were called the Aka. And they were killed. Nate Saint's wife, Rachel, and Elizabeth Elliott stayed on, eventually reached, and the very men who killed those five men were, were brought to Christ. One of the men who died was a man by the name of Ed McCulley. Ed McCulley's dad, hearing that those men who had butchered his son had come to Christ, flew to Ecuador, went out into the jungle, and later told people, I had the privilege of sitting around a fire on a log with the men who killed my son and breaking the bread and taking the cup. Because they weren't my enemies. They were my brothers in Christ. Only Jesus Christ has the power to do that. Our unity goes beyond race. It goes beyond social status. It goes beyond uh, nation. It is a unity of every believer who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so he talks about the person, and the cost was the blood. It cost the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring us near to God. In the passage we read, he talks about that he wants to center on the person of our unity. And so he says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. In Micah 5, the passage that predicts the birth of the Lord in Bethlehem, it says in verse 5, this one will be our peace. Prophesize. This is the one who's going to bring peace. Isaiah calls him the prince of peace. The Lord alone is the source of peace with God, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What nothing else could do, not works, not law-keeping, Christ did by his sacrifice. He brought about reconciliation, peace between God and men, and between Jews and Gentiles, because now both were in Christ. And so he says, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one. The Jews 
that were over here and looked down with disdain at the Gentiles and the Gentiles who were over here antagonistic towards the Jews. He's taken both groups and he's brought them into one, a unity. And then he says, how did he do that? Well, he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Most commentaries think Paul has in mind a, um, something that was physical in the temple. In Solomon's temple, there were several courtyards. Uh, there was the courtyard of the Gentiles here in this little section here. There was the courtyard where the women could go here. There's the courtyard of Israel where the men could go. There's the court of the priests where the priests could go. Um, and you'll notice that there was this little wall, about three and a half, four feet high, with, with openings in it that covered, went between the court of the Gentiles. This is, they've gone too far with this line. Court of the Gentiles is here. Um, between the court of the Gentiles and where all the Jews could go. And by every one of those openings was a little plaque. And here's, we found some of those plaques. And here's what um, the plaque said. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. If I, as a Gentile, was standing out here and said, well, I'd like a closer look, and I came through here and they discovered I was a Gentile, they would put me to death. I was outside. The thing that enraged the Lord is the Lord had established an area so that the Gentiles could come and see the glory of the temple and see the worship of the Jews and be drawn to the God of Israel. What the Jews did was this is where they put the sacrificial animal, the money changers that the Lord drove out. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to come and visit the temple, you stood amongst the sheep and oxen and birds and the money changers. That's where they put it. And the Lord drove it out and he said, my house is a house of prayer for all nations. And, and the Jews were saying to the Gentiles, we really don't want you and our God doesn't either. And God says, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And so this little wall, he's broken down. Well, how did he break it down? Well, notice what it says. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity which the law of commandments contained in ordinances. When we studied the book of Hebrews, what did we learn? All those laws about how a Jew could come to God, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the tabernacle, all of this stuff was unnecessary because Christ serves in the real temple in heaven because Christ is our high priest and he is our sacrifice. See, this wall is absolutely um, nullified. Because none of this is, any, is necessary for Jews or for Gentiles. And so the wall is gone. And so he says, listen, 
He made peace. He established peace. He broke down the dividing wall by nullifying the enmity. Now the Jews couldn't look down on, on the, the Gentiles, and the Gentiles couldn't be under threat of death because that wall's gone, because everything inside that wall has been set aside by the work of Christ. And then he says, by himself making, uh, verse, uh, the end of verse 15, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, establishing peace. Christ made the two into one new man. The word make is really the word create. This is a, a new creation of God. So we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if anyone, Jew or Gentile, is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And the word new is a word that means new in character rather than new in the sense of recent or new in time. God's making something new. There was a man by the name of John Chrysostom. Chrysostom uh, is Greek for golden-tongued. He was a great preacher. That's how he got that nickname. And he was describing what's happening in this verse. And, and I love the way he puts it. He said, it is not that Christ brought up one to the level of the others. He didn't say, well, here's the Jews, and they're really spectacular. I'm just going to bring the Gentiles up so they're even. He says, that's not what he did. It's not that Christ brought up one to the level of the other. It's that he produced a greater, as if one should melt down a statue of silver, the Jews, and another of lead, the Gentiles, and the two together should come out as gold better than either of the two. He says, that's what God's done. He's taken the position the Jews had and the position the Gentiles had, and he's given them both a better position together. And so they're better off in this new, it's no longer Jew or Gentile, it's Christian. I'm in Christ. And this is a better position than the Gentile I would have had as a Gentile in the Old, Coven, in the Old Testament or even a Jew in the Old Testament. And then he did something else. He goes on, verse 16, that he might reconcile them in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. Both Jews and Gentiles have to come to the cross to be reconciled to God. And both stand on the same ground. And it ends the hostility of one being better than the other. We all have to come to the cross. We all have to say, I'm a sinner deserving the judgment of God. I need a Savior. And so we all have to come to Christ. And he says, because of that, we're reconciled to God. And because we all come to the same place, to the same person, it does away with that, that enmity where the Jews had all these rules and regulations and stood up on them and looked down on the Gentiles who didn't care about all those rules and regulations. Peter, in Acts 10, came to Cornelius' house and he says, you know that it is unlawful for a man being a Jew to visit you or eat with you. That's how bad the enmity was. 
But Peter says, God has shown me that I should call no man unholy or unclean. There's a different order, and Jesus Christ has established it. And he preached peace. Oh, go, go next one. Um, in, through the apostles... He came to the Gentiles who were far away, and he came to the Jews who were near, and it was the same good news to both groups. So Peter said, when, when the Jews got mad, that when they heard he had been down at Cornelius' house, and he says, look, both of us come the same way. And God's proven it by giving them the Spirit. We both come the same way. And the Lord Jesus preached peace and then he goes on and he says, um, he, he preached peace to those who were far away and those who were near, for through him both have one access, have our access in one spirit to the Father. He says, listen, not only did we have to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and not only was the message that went to the Gentiles and the Jews the same, but... The same Spirit gives us the same access to the Father. And he says, when you stack all these things up, you say there's no difference. <laughs> there's no difference. There, God has made Jews and Gentiles, these groups that were so divided, he's made them one. Note the repeated emphasis on one. Verse 14, both into one. Verse 15, the two into one new man. Verse 16, reconcile both in one body. Uh, in verse 18, both have access in one spirit. God has made the people of God, those who have trust in Jesus Christ, a unified body. Don't try to make a difference. Okay? We don't say, oh, you don't, you don't do this like we do. No. If they're believers in Christ, they stand in, the, in Jesus Christ just like we do. And I'm not saying if there's sin or something like that. And I'm not saying that you can hold to things that you find valuable and even have a difference of opinion with other Christians. But you can't say, you're lower than me. We stand on the same ground. We stand on the ground of the cross. And God calls us to recognize, and later he's going to call us with diligence to preserve this unity that the Spirit has made amongst Christians. And so we need to live in that unity. And then he talks about the purpose of the unity. He gives us new identities. He says, we're fellow uh, citizens with the saints. Notice what he says. So then you are no longer strangers. That's, that's like people who j come to America to visit and buy some things and go back home. They're, they're just trans short-term transients. And aliens, those are resident aliens who, who never have really become citizens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are a citizen of heaven. Your citizen, Paul says to the Philippians, is in heaven. You're, you don't come to the church just to visit. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go over there and visit. Don't ask me to do anything because I'm just here visiting. 
No. You're part of the church. You're a citizen of heaven. And we have responsibilities as ambassadors to Christ to live as citizens of heaven. He goes on. He says, we are members of God's household. That's God's family. Brethren is the most common term used for believers in the New Testament. We have a family responsibility to help one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another. Let me tell you something. God cares as much about how you treat other believers as you care about how your children treat each other. And so God calls on us to recognize the responsibility of family with other believers. We have a new identity. We need to live as citizens of heaven. We need to live as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says, as living stones in a holy temple. The word temple in this section is the word for the holy of holies. Notice he says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. When the Lord left, the one who brought the message and the word of God and the apostles' doctrine were the apostles, and before they had the word of God in our hands, there were prophets who spoke the word of God to, to local assemblies, and they were foundational in how we ought to act and live as a church. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the main stone that they put, and every other stone in the building aligned with that stone and was joined to that stone. And Jesus Christ, he says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the one who gives stability and direction to the church. It is his church. He's the head. And it goes on, it says, in whom the Lord Jesus, the whole building is being fitted together, is growing to a holy temple in the Lord. It is the Lord that gives life and strength to grow. And then he says, in whom you also, talking to Gentiles, are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us individually God indwells us. Our body is a holy, holy, holy of holies for the, for the Holy Spirit. But corporately, someday, the whole church is going to be together and we will be the dwelling place of God. And he's growing his church through the ages all over this planet. And he says, I want you to recognize that unity. And I want you to recognize your new identity. Nobody can say, I'm not important. You're a stone in this church, this mega church. You're important. God's given you a gift. We'll see that later. I want to end with, with an event that happened in my life. In 1970, I went to Europe with Operation Mobilization. And uh, they were reaching half of, half of France. They wanted to put a gospel literature in every home in half of France and the next year the other half. So we went over a couple weeks early. And then we went to the big conference before we went out to Italy, Spain. I went to Turkey. Um, and at that conference, there were people from Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Germany, France, Spain, 
Italy, the British Isles. Not everybody spoke English. Most of them had some English, but not everybody spoke English. And you got a job. Uh, every day you'd sign up and you'd do some work. And I signed up with a friend from a mass to wash dishes. Now it was buckets, you know, a bucket of, of rinse water, a bucket of soapy water, a bucket to rinse it, final rinse, hand it to someone to, to dry. And so we're washing dishes. We try to engage some people in conversation and realize they don't understand the English. That's not going to get us anywhere. And so I'd wash dishes at a mass, and it can be boring. And when you're washing dishes for about 3,000 people by hand, it can be a very long, boring job. And so I said to Russ, hey, at a mass, when we got bored, we just sang. What do you say you and I sang? And so we started singing a Christian song, and all of a sudden, somebody's banging on the table, and we look over, and, he's, and he, he looks around and, and indicates, do you know this song? And everybody did, nod their head. So we all started singing in probably six different languages. Now, I understand some of the words may be different than the words I was singing, but we were all singing songs of praise to Jesus Christ using the same tune. When we got done, somebody would stop, and they would knock and we'd all look at him and he would sing the first line and we'd nod if we knew the tune and we'd take off singing again and I said you know this is kind of how it's going to be in heaven and when we have the youth conference here and there's 170 kids here and they're singing praises God that's God, that's God giving you a little taste of what it's going to be like when every person who's ever trusted in Jesus Christ is around the throne of Jesus Christ looking at the Lord in glory and we're singing together. And that's what's ahead for us. And so he says, listen, there's a unity. It costs the blood of Christ. You be careful if you start messing with the unity of the church. You've got a new identity. You are a citizen of heaven. You're God's ambassador to this world. You are part of a big family, and you better take care of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you are part of this thing that someday is going to knock your socks off because it's so glorious. And you get to be a part of it now and then. Father, we thank you. All of us here can think of people that you brought into our lives, believers who ministered to us, who cared for us, because we too were brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to live that way with our brothers and sisters in Christ and as your citizens, your ambassadors out in the world. Help us to be those stones that, that someday will shine in glory in your presence. Help us to catch the vision because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.